welcome back everybody to another episode of Stick a Fork in It. Uh, we are downtown Tampa today, and we're we're short one. Shannon, we will miss her. We'll see her next week. <laughs> um, but uh, for today, we are here with a special guest. I've got Thomas again joining me on the show, as well as Mayor Caster. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. This <laughs> is very exciting. It's a big day. You know what's really important? I got street parking. Oh wow! Oh, Impressive. Man, that always. I'm real. I'm like right across the street. Yeah. Not bad. You should leave your car there. Overnight. Always a special thrill. <laughs> Got a great spot. Yeah. <laughs> so we're really, really thrilled you're taking the time to do this with us. We're mm-hmm. grateful for it. We've gotten to know you much better over the last couple of years, really <laughs> since the pandemic. But boy, it's great to have you as a guest. Thank you for taking the time. Oh, to my do pleasure. This. Yeah. So we're going to cover a bunch of different topics with you today. I mm-hmm. think we want to know a little bit more about you. I think that's in some ways what Stick a Fork In is really about is kind of having a bit more of an in-depth discussion about okay. who people are and how they end up where they, they are. So we're going to dive right in if that's okay All with right. you. I'm ready. Okay. I see you have a nice cold beverage there. You're ready to go. (laughs) So first question, where'd you grow up? I grew up here in Tampa. I I thought Mm -hmm. so. So mom and dad from Tampa? No, uh, mom and dad from Indiana. And my mom always tells a story that she married my father on the promise he would move her to Florida. Wow. So So even then family wanted to come south. Yes. uh, My mom with her family vacationed uh, down in the St. Pete area. Uh And so they, my mom and dad moved with my mom's uh, best friend and her husband, uh, they moved down here, and there's five kids in my family. My oldest sister was born in Indiana, and the other four, we were all born uh, down here at the old St. Joe's on Florida Avenue, where my father always said there was a bar across the street from the hospital, <laughs> and uh, somebody would come in and say, hey, such and such, your kid's born, and they'd yeah. go over to the hospital. Walk across. So. Now, where do you fall in the birth order? I'm number four or five. Okay, and what are your mm-hmm. siblings still here? Yeah, we all live here. Um, the in-laws uh, all accuse us of not being normal because we're all best friends. So <laughs> interesting. Um, no arguments. No, we all get along, and that was one of the most difficult things to deal with when I first became a police officer. Uh, you know, individuals would have trials and tribulations in their life, and I'd be like. You know, you call your family member, and they're like, oh, I haven't talked to them in years. And I thought, man, if I called my family, they'd all be in this room in the next five Yeah, years. and it's funny. I think that's a great point. We'll probably come back to that a little bit later, how folks are formed by the experiences mm-hmm. that, you know, we have and then the work that you, right. you end up doing. What did your mom and dad do for a living, or did your mom uh, was mom? My dad, my mom was stay-at-home yep. uh, mom. My dad was a cabinet maker his whole life. Tradesman, uh, my mother uh-huh. did go to, to work once, you know, we were all— in school, and um, she was a receptionist for uh, the Tampa Bay Tribune, and she worked there for a number of years. But my dad, as a cabinet maker, he and my older brother uh, started a cabinet shop in 1977, and my two brothers run that to this day. Really? Yep, still open, down on uh, West Tampa. Been there since 77. So there are people that end up spending their lives in one community. Did you ever have that thought of, I want to go find another place or were you always, so this Mm -hmm. has always been it? Always been it. I always said, I'll never, ever leave Tampa. Uh, When I retired from the police department, I had offers to go to other departments and and be the chief of police and uh, no interest in moving Mm -hmm. from 
I travel. I enjoy traveling, but uh, no place like home. All right, coming coming back into Tampa International. So That's right. Let's talk a little bit about your growing up. You go through whatever formative experiences you have. Now you were pretty a pretty accomplished athlete. <laughs> Used to be. <laughs> <laughs> That's usually how it goes, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, my uh, my niece, who's gosh in her thirties now, um, when she was young, probably five or six. Uh, out at my parents' house, she was counting like the trophies that I had, and I can't remember she counted. And I go, um, you know, that's great, you were able to count that high. And she goes, um, "Wow, Aunt Jane, you used to be somebody." <laughs> oh, ouch! <laughs> Not familiar with the concept of mayor quite yet, is she? <laughs> right, right, right. So, did you have a natural inclination? Was this a part of your family? Did you guys play sports? How did you end up? Yeah, it was my father. Uh, my father's a good athlete. And really, I grew up what used to be out in the country in, in North Tampa, and uh, our house was that house. You know, my dad made the the patio into a basketball court. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a sandlot baseball mm-hmm. field across the street, um, playing football. And all the kids in the neighborhood that were my age were boys. And so I just grew up as an athlete. I had a lake. uh, We would swim all the time. So just um, I I always tell people that I didn't realize we were poor until I got to high school. Mm. I was like, oh, because everybody on our lot, on our lane was in the same position. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Huh. Yeah. So now when you and I were growing up, we're, we're similar ages. There was a lot less delineation between rich and poor. Mm-hmm. Right. You True. had a lot more sense. But so you when you went to high school, you saw some differences for the first time. Yes, without a doubt. I went to Chamberlain High School in the original Carrollwood, mm-hmm. uh, you know, fed into mm-hmm. Chamberlain. And so, you know, the kids pulling up in their brand new cars and I was pulling up in the, the you know, the hand-me-down <laughs> car that uh, you parked about right. four blocks right. away didn't from any party <laughs> because you didn't want anybody to know you were driving it. Yeah. Now, what sports did you play in high school? Uh, in high school, I played them all. I was a um, beneficiary of uh, Title IX, which a lot of people don't realize. We just had the 50-year anniversary of that. So that was passed when I was 12, junior high, as my kids will say, Mom, it's middle school. (laughs) But junior high, and so young girls had the same opportunity as young boys to participate in sports. So uh, track and field, swimming, basketball, volleyball, they didn't have softball or or uh, soccer at that time. Were you aware of Title IX at that age, or did you learn in hindsight that was what made it possible for learn you? Learn in hindsight. And what did you yes. think when you learned that? When I learned that, I thought, what an, what an opportunity, because it was my involvement in athletics that led to a full scholarship to University of Tampa. My parents couldn't afford college education, and so... Um, you know, it really was the key that opened up every door for me. Well, I want to talk about UT in a moment, but let me ask you two questions. First question is, what is your passion sport? What was the one that you said, this is what I loved? Well, it, at the time, I would say it was between uh, basketball, volleyball, but really basketball is mm-hmm. a lifetime sport. You mm-hmm. can play by yeah. yourself all the way up to five on five full court. Uh, volleyball is all about timing. And you have to stay up on it and clearly have to have a a team to play on. Yeah. So the other question is, you know, we start to develop some of our characteristics. I played team sports as well. And you kind of Mm -hmm. learn who you are in that framework, right? Mm -hmm. Where you we see you, of course, as this incredibly powerful leader today that we know. (laughs) 
What was your role on the sports teams? Were you ever a captain? How did you see yourself in that? You know, where did you fit into the infrastructure? Were you Mm -hmm. still figuring out who you were or were the leadership tendencies you have today ones you uh, ran across then? Well, I think in hindsight, uh, they must have been uh, present at that time as well. One of the things that uh, I attribute athletics uh, with in my life is is uh, the development of life skills. Mm-hmm. You know, people develop life skills in different locations. For me, it was out on the court or out mm-hmm. on the field. And so um, really, I I was usually the captain of the team and then you know, on the all-star teams, uh, countywide, and then in college, statewide. So uh, right now, uh, for example, University of Tampa just won the National Volleyball Championships mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. again. Yep. And so I watched that, and some I was there when they won, and someone turned to me and said, you used to do that. And I said, I never did that. <laughs> I mean, the level of women's athletics now compared to when I can, was coming through. And you draw that right back to Title IX, can't yes, you? Yes, yeah. just completely different. Yeah. So that's interesting. So you, you have always been in leadership, and we're going to talk a little bit later on in the, the podcast about leadership and how you learn some of those and what are kind of the hallmarks of your own style of leadership. But how did, you know, obviously Chamberlain isn't that far from UT, but how do you end up at UT? How does that happen? You know, mm-hmm. somebody come to your house one day and talk to you and your parents and say, we'd like you to come to UT. How'd that happen for you? Uh, yes, I was, I was recruited by a few schools, uh, most notably because I didn't want to leave Tampa was uh, University of Tampa and University of South Florida. And really with University of Tampa, you know, the full athletic scholarship um, was very attractive. Hmm. And so what was it like? You know, did you come stay on campus or were you a commuter student? <laughs> I was a commuter in the beginning. And then um, a group of us uh, got an apartment down off of Bayshore. I think the name of it was Bayshore Oaks. Uh, it's been torn down uh, since then. But um, friends on uh, University of Tampa back then, the majority of the students lived on Davis Islands. I never lived. We had uh, Howell and DeLoe were the student housing towers, and I never lived in cam- on campus in a dorm. Yeah. How would you describe your college career? Like, what was your sense of it? You know, what did you, uh, was it more towards athletics, education? How would you kind of describe your your time on campus? Well, I would describe my first year as quite the learning experience. (laughs) Uh, um, When you end up your your first semester on academic warning, I was like, oh, I have to do something besides play basketball. (laughs) I ended up graduating with honors. So that was, I I turned that around. But um, in the beginning, I mean, I literally was 17 years old my freshman year. My birthday's in December. So halfway through my freshman year, I was still 17 years old and not the most mature individual. Well, who would, right, who would know those kind of things? Although right. probably there's, uh, there's a case to be made that we were a bit more mature at our age than folks our age are today. But we, we'll stay away from <laughs> right. that one. There you go. Were you the first in your family to go to college? Yes. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yes. So that's my uh, older one of my older sisters is a nurse, and she went through the the nursing school, but a four years uh, college education. Okay. Yes, I'm it. All right. So your degree in college is in what? Criminology. Right. So how does a person who grew up in, as you said, a really well adjusted, warm family, uh, dad's a, a, a craftsman? How do you end up as a police officer? Like, what's the transition that happens there? I know. That's a good question. I get (laughs) 
asked quite often, and I wish I had, <clears throat> you know, a textbook answer uh, or or heartwarming story for that. But I I really stumbled into law enforcement on the local level. I was drawn to criminology because it was very interesting, but I had aspirations of going into the federal service. And when I graduated, Ronald Reagan was the president. Probably a lot of people don't even know him from history books. But uh, he I'm had, right there with you, Mayor. There you go. He had put a freeze on federal hiring. And I had some friends from University of Tampa that had gone to the Tampa Police Department. They're like, you should come here. You'd really like it. And I always say that I was blessed because for 31 years, it was never a day I didn't want to go to work. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, no one in my family had been a police officer. My father had an older brother that was a motorcycle officer. He actually died uh, on in a motorcycle accident, but no exposure, no nothing to law enforcement until I applied and became a, a police officer. And it was the right fit for me. That's now, for how sure. many? So, so this would have been uh, this 1984. I was going to say it's been in the early 80s. So there were some women on the police force, but mm-hmm. there can't have been a very large presence. No, there really weren't. Um, but I never saw myself as a trailblazer. You know, the the women who were the first to get into law enforcement, those were the individuals that were the true trailblazers mm-hmm. that really had the most difficult time, not only from the police department, but from the community as well. Well, and you're coming into the you're coming into the profession at a time I think when the country is starting to wrestle with you know whether women should be in the military. What's mm-hmm. you know what's right, right. What, you know. So there's there's a lot of conversation about that. And as you said, it wasn't necessarily in your mind to be a trailblazer, but you must have been aware you would be unusual within the department. Mm-hmm. You know, but I, I, it never really occurred to me. The first uh, squad that one of the training squads I went to, the, the sergeant was a woman. Um, the first permanent squad I went to, uh, there were two other women on the, the um, squad of eight. And uh, it's funny because one, Lynn Carell, we rode together a lot and they used to, that's when Cagney and Lacey was out. Ah, yeah, and they okay. used to call uh-huh. us Cagney and Lacey all the time, <laughs> uh, which was funny. But, um, I, you know, I never really thought about that. The, the trailblazing, I do know that there is such a place for women in law mm-hmm, enforcement mm-hmm. and women really, when you look at the statistics, there are less resist, there's less injuries, there's less deadly force. So, um, women really have a unique skill set that they can bring in to law enforcement because the most important tool that a police officer has is your ability to talk your way into or out of a situation. Mm -hmm. And quite often when you show up as a police officer and there's some type of confrontation, the men just want to save face. And so they'll fight the police. But if it's a woman then they start with, you know, ooh, you can put those handcuffs on, you know, whatever. <laughs> right. And I'm like, whatever, as right. long as I get the handcuffs on it. <laughs> or they'll say, you know, if you were a guy, I would have beat your butt. You right. know, those kind of comments, but there's less um, need for resistance. Confrontation. So I want to come back to for a moment. It's interesting that you go into a profession that's not necessarily uh, the typical pattern. It's also interesting that you go into that profession not necessarily concerned about, hey, I'm going to be one of the few here. I want to go back to your parents and your upbringing for a Mm -hmm. moment. What was their type of of behavior 
uh, I guess how the better way to say it is, how did your parents coach you, mm-hmm. lead you, yeah. raise you? What were the things, like if you said, here are the lessons that I right. took from that, how do you reflect upon those yeah. today? That's a, that's a great question. And, and my older siblings would always say, you know, that my younger brother and I had it easy. And I, I say that my mom and dad's parenting philosophy, by the time we came along, is a, the other ones are still alive. You can do whatever you want. But really, in my household, um, you were never discouraged from doing anything. Right. You know, it was never, oh, girls don't do that or boys don't do that. But you were um, expected to give 110% to whatever you did. And so I think that that freedom really um, shaped who I was. But as, there has as to I be a older. there has to be a foundational confidence that you mm-hmm. must possess, right, to be able to say. I mean, we're going to all get to the point of how how someone becomes a mayor in a moment. But there must be some sort of foundational confidence that says to you, uh, "I can be the captain of a team. Mm-hmm. I can take a scholarship, perform well. I can compete at a high level. Mm-hmm. I can go into a profession that's not normally the again even in that age not normally the pathway." Where does that sense of confidence and capability come from? Do you feel like that's learned from your family orientation? Do you feel like that's part of your own kind of DNA? I think that that, for the most part, I think that that is learned and it's encouraged, um, uh, you know, through your encounters, not only with your family, uh, your parents, your siblings, but also with your friends and people that you encounter mm-hmm. uh, through your life. It's... Um, uh, you know, some of it may be innate. Uh, I am a competitive person. I always <laughs> say I don't have to be number one. I just can't be number two. <laughs> so uh, I never really thought, you know, people would say, did you always want to be the chief of police? And I said, no, only when I had about three years on, like, make me chief. Right. I'll fix this place. Right. You know, when you think you know everything. Right. But um, because the higher you go in law enforcement, the less you get to do what you came there to yes. do to help people out in the yes. community. But, you know, that that I always wanted to do well on all the promotional exams. So I always prepared myself and I always did well. And so I was promoted um, through the ranks. Would you consider yourself the person that was most likely to outwork anybody else around you? Mm, I I don't know about that, but close, close up there. Yeah, I'm, I'm always prepared. I think it comes back to that competitiveness. Yes. Mm -hmm. So. You you become a police officer, and I don't know much about how this profession works. So your first job would be out on the street, walking mm-hmm. a beat, or in a car. What's what's no the... in a car okay. uh, patrol? We didn't really have uh, walking beats by okay. the time I came on. Um, but uh, yeah, my uh, first assignment, permanent midnights, was John Seven, which was Davis Islands, and I always wanted to get on the radio and say, "Shut the island down, nobody on, nobody." <laughs> <laughs> and when Hawaii Five O just came back, you know, part two, whatever, I'd walk through and my son was watching it and I'd be book him Dan and he'd be like, How do you know that mom? I'm like, this is yeah, a this retread. Is version two. I know. So was there a lot of major activity on Davis Island at uh, Let me tell you, Tampa General Hospital. Oh pretty much spent your night there in the wow. emergency room. I always said I'd take those emergency room nurses as a backup any day. <laughs> but um and also Kennedy Boulevard. Right. And Kennedy okay. Boulevard used to have uh, plasma centers, um, oh, so prostitution. Are, yeah, okay, sure. Uh, sure. I mean, you name it, gay yeah. bars. It had 
Kennedy Boulevard had everything, everything. Wow. back in the eighties. Yeah, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> so you're on the job X number of weeks, months, or years. When do you realize this is you? Uh, probably from day one. You did. Mm-hmm. You know, you said yes. a few moments ago that, that that you know, in 31 years, you didn't think about having yeah. to come to work, but but you found that it was a place that you wanted to be at. So. Is that the people? Is that the responsibilities? Is it the opportunity? Is it the wide variety of, you know, you? I can't imagine there's not much you didn't see during your yeah. time. It's all of the above. Uh, you know, there's no two situations are the same. There's no um, set answer for any situation that you face. Uh, you can go from, I mean, literally... Uh, changing the spotlights in an elderly widow's back lawn because she heard noises to responding to a homicide or being in a high-speed pursuit. Um, You're your own boss out there for the most part Mm -hmm. on the street. And just being able to help people. And then the individuals that you meet. Well, I was going to ask you about that. So we had a, we had a, we did a podcast last week with Addison Davis, and oh, we okay. talked about you know he grew up as a teacher, right? Mm-hmm. And so we asked him the question of you know do you remember certain students? Do you remember certain people that you've come across in your career and you wonder about them, think about them? Do they still stay in your mind? Do certain people still cross your mm-hmm. mental path? Yes, without a doubt. They're as I like to describe. Uh, law enforcement, I said, you get to see and do things that nobody gets to see or do, but you have to see and do things that nobody should have to see or do. And there are calls that you will remember every single second of your entire life. Um, And people that you meet that are remarkable, remarkable individuals in their courage, in their um, giving heart. Uh, People out there that are just every day they're they're angels in everyday ordinary clothing how to thank you um because i don't imagine you can do a job like that in any level for 31 years and not have the story of your community and the story of the people in front of you not have that shape you mm-hmm. so let's talk about that a little bit you go through a variety of different promotions throughout your you know in your tenure ends as the chief of police how did all of that start to shape your thinking about community and what communities were dealing with and what was mm-hmm. going on? And, and uh, I don't know if at that time you're even thinking about the, the role of a mayor, but certainly you're thinking about moving towards leadership. How did you start to consider, you know, you joked about three years in, I knew pretty much how to, <laughs> but you know, you, you, the further you get, the real you realize right. how hard change is. Mm-hmm. And, and so, but let's start with the first uh, question. How did you begin to see community? I know that's a really broad question. Question, mm-hmm. but but what did you you mentioned that people are incredible, right? Mm-hmm. And, and stories of courage. But how did you start to see the community you lived in? I started to see the community. I think in um, in a number of different ways. Uh, one of the things that become becomes very clear is the inequity in in different neighborhoods. And the you know I think about myself and the opportunities that I had growing mm-hmm. up, and then I would deal with individuals out in the community. And I would think if I was faced with a fraction of the barriers that they were faced with, I never would have been able to overcome. And so, um, you know, that, that was something, uh, that, but I, I think the overall goodness of people, Mm -hmm. I mean, you do meet, uh, people I've, I've met evil people without a doubt, but the vast majority of people are 
good people, and they just may be in bad circumstances. I had an Uber driver one time, and he had retired from uh, New York as a, as a prison guard, and he said that he felt that every police officer should have to start out working in a prison. And he said that way you can tell the difference between good people and bad people. And he goes, good people who made a bad decision that are in prison, and he goes, and then people that are just bad and need to be in prison. Yeah, there's. A, we have a saying in our world, don't criticize the choices I made until you knew the options I had. Exactly. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. It's interesting that your response to it, so it, it would have been pretty easy to become cynical. That's and true. I imagine you're probably around an awful lot of fellow you know, folks serving the community. It's, it's, it's hard to keep your faith in humanity, so to speak, when you, you know, again, you said you saw a lot of good, but you mm-hmm. also saw a lot of other things. Uh, but you came out of the experience ultimately with a, a degree of faith in humanity. Yes, without a doubt. And it's, um, it's interesting. We had a a public information officer, and she used to always ask me, where do you get those rose-colored glasses? (laughs) She goes, I just can't believe you're always so positive. But I think that's part of your, you know, you talked earlier about the DNA. Yes. And um, to a degree, I think that that's something that's in your your DNA as well, is to, you know, to be that eternal optimist or on the other side to... To be pessimistic or questionable. Well, it's interesting. I would. I, I don't know you well enough. We've you know to say this, but it's interesting. I would view you in many ways as a positive realist. Mm-hmm. There you go. Right. <laughs> right. Because you you have a pretty sober view of what is or isn't. You're pretty comfortable in that mm-hmm. assessment. But but by and large, your take on it is the follow up, which is I guess. But we'll be all right, or we'll figure this out, or we'll right. step forward. And again, I want to come back to that's you. That's in. That's family. That's where does that come from inside you? How do you, right? Was that always you? I think that was always me. Um, the but my family's pretty. My brothers and sisters are are positive individuals as well. So, uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's something that was was shaped. I believe that it's more shaped than innate. So my parents would have to uh, get a lot of credit for that. Well, you know, it's always a great debate, which we won't go into here because neither of us are qualified. But right? <laughs> it doesn't mean but, we can't talk about it <laughs> right? or opine. Uh, but, you know, it's always interesting nature versus nurture. Yes. One of the things I would share is that, you know, uh, from a, my own personal experience in, in leadership is that, you know, that idea of does adversity reveal character or build it? And the answer is yes, both. Mm-hmm. Right. You have to have some character to do the work that you're doing, but you also have to be willing to be shaped by the events that you've gone through right, right as you've been through that. I want to ask you a negative question just to see if you'll take the bait at all. <laughs> uh, what frustrated you about what, you know, I heard what you said, this, the circumstances of folks that you saw, but what frustrated you about the system you were in or the community you were in? What did you say? Because ultimately we're going to get to a place where you're going to say, I want to be the mayor because. Mm-hmm. And usually when someone says, I want to be the mayor because, they have some things that they want to address. Right. So let's talk about that a little bit. How did you what did you start to see over those 31 years where you said this this just ought not be? Well, um, I, I believe that one of the things that that to look to change are some of the systems that we have put in place that are meant to be a hand up that have turned into a way of life. Mm-hmm. And we've taken away. Personally, I believe that. um your self-worth comes from your contribution. 
sense of society agency. Yes, you have a sense of agency over mankind. your life. Yep. Right. And in some ways, we've taken that away. And with that, oftentimes, oftentimes goes someone's sense of hope. Right. And if you're, you know, if you have a sense of hopelessness or uh, that you are unworthy, then it's going to be difficult to reach your potential. We just want to take a moment here to thank the Tampa Bay Bucks for an exciting season this year, and even more so for all that they do to tackle hunger in our area. The players, cheerleaders, and team staff have provided 6.4 million meals over the course of our partnership, and the D-Line alone has fed 3,200 families through school pantries and holiday donations. We're already looking forward to next season and all the greatness it will bring both on and off the field. Yeah, I think, I think, you know, I would even observe having now worked in the social services arena for 20 plus years that there are aspects of our work that keep people confined yes. to the place in which we serve them. I think we're going to talk That's a little true. bit about our, our future as an organization and why you're working with us on that, because I think we're fairly convinced that our work is humanitarian, but not necessarily the best over the long term for the right. folks we're serving. So I want to talk about that. You know, so here's a topic I know nothing about. How the heck does someone become a mayor? So <laughs> you're a, a police chief, right? You're running this whole thing. And, and, uh, before we get to the mayor, I just want to. So, running a police force of this size and scope, things you want to share about that? How is <laughs> how is that experience? Yeah, it's um, well. One thing I always tell individuals: something that was said to me a long time ago, and it can be applied to different positions. Could even be applied to the position of mayor. That there are two types of police chiefs. There's the individual that wants to make positive change in their community and there's the individual that wants to be called chief mm. and so you know i always um clearly strive to be uh the the first um but uh as far as mayor i never had any aspirations of being the the mayor of the city i clearly love our city and it was an honor uh, to be a police officer and then to be able to rise to the level of police chief was. All right. So you, you retired as police chief. How old were you? If you don't, is that, can, can we ask that on this? Is that still <laughs> possible? Can. I, was, <laughs> I imagine it's a matter of public record somewhere. <laughs> Gosh, I have to think back. I was definitely in my 50s. All right, so we'll just say mid-50s just to be mm -hmm. safe or early 50s. That's a pretty young age to say, well, I'm retired. Right. Right. So that's that's, you know, for many people, I think in the military and, and law enforcement, you end up retiring at a younger age uh, physically. Uh, so, yeah, but those years. Yeah, are like I was going to say, years, I imagine. Right. right. I, I was just going to say, I imagine the toll that that, that it takes. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you retired. So what did you say? Well, I'm going to go. I'm going to write the great American novel. I'm oh. going to learn to paint. I'm <laughs> going to build a car. What would you what were you going to do? Right. Well, you know, you have those ideas of retirement, but um, I'm not not a person that can just it wouldn't sit seem still. right it would not no. seem to be your so right. i uh began consulting working through the federal government okay uh, going to other police departments throughout the united states helping them right. with organizational change um d participated in some reports uh, did the pulse after action report was mm -hmm. part of that uh, worked for the city of miami um, help the police chief in Dallas uh, write a strategic plan, just a lot of different law enforcement centric. And I did that for uh, five years. And then 
just in conversations with Pam Iorio, who appointed mm -hmm. me as the chief right. of police, and then Bob Buckhorn, both of them being very good friends. Uh, and you know, great mayors in their own, right? Correct. Yes. I always say Tampa had the right mayor for the right time. Sure. And uh, I hope I live up to that. But um, having conversations with them about the future of our city and knowing that Tampa is going to change more in the following decade than it had in my entire life, it was just an opportunity. Well, I want to ask you one more question before we get to the mayor thing. So uh, consulting, right? Uh, ultimately that, you know, it would not seem to be the thing you would be most drawn to that while it's intellectually stimulating, I don't imagine that it scratched the part of your soul that's important <laughs> to you. Well, it did because you have the same situations, the same issues in, in other communities. Like, for example, I did work for a few years in Flint, Michigan. Uh -huh. And um, Flint, Michigan was a city that, that went from 300-plus residents down to 90-some yes. thousand. Mm -hmm. And the poverty and the mm -hmm. crime and just the, you know, the overarching sense of hopelessness. And so to be, in, to be able to go in there and make positive, e even incremental change. and small change um, was rewarding. Yeah, I guess it's always, uh, it's always hard to be able to say, okay, uh, you know, um, uh, this isn't my community or my job, right? And mm -hmm. so uh, let's come back to the mayor for a moment. So I assume there's some sort of barbecue joint that everybody goes to, like all the power <laughs> brokers, and they invite you there for a lunch, and somebody <laughs> grabs you by the elbow and says, hey, we want you to run. Uh, how does that really happen beyond the movies? Yeah. How did you decide? It, it doesn't happen like that. <laughs> I did have uh, individuals that had said, you know, through the years that you should think about political office. And I never saw myself. I still, to this day, I don't see myself right, I heard as you say the other night you don't see yourself as right, a politician. You know, sure. I'm, I just, I, I always tell people that simplify your life by doing the right thing for the right reason. Mm -hmm. And don't listen to the criticism, you know, to the point of being the chief of police. Uh, people don't know all of the, you know, as you said before, you don't know what all the options are mm -hmm. uh, in the, that are associated with the decisions that you make. So, um, you know, that's something. And, and just being a police officer for 31 years, you've got thick skin. Mm -hmm. So the criticism doesn't really... Um, uh, sink in or absorb. But uh, I tell people too, had I known about the fundraising portion of being <laughs> in office, I wouldn't be sitting before you today. But um, really just the, it was, I would have to go back to Pam Iorio and Bob Buckhorn that made the um, deepest impression mm -hmm. on me and, and talked about this office and the impact that you could have on our community. And that appealed to you, obviously. So mm -hmm. I was going to ask you earlier, do you have mentors and people that you tend to go to? I mean, you're at the end of the day, you're in a position where everybody brings their challenges and problems to you. Are you do you have a place in a person or people that you can go to? Mm -hmm. Yes, you have to. There's yeah. no way that you could be in a position because as a police chief of police, I, I told somebody that those two I was speaking to a new mayor's group at Harvard a couple of weeks ago about the police chiefs. And I said, those are probably the two loneliest positions yes. are police chief and mayor, because whatever you say is, is, you know, taken verbatim and yeah. taken as gospel yeah. as you're speaking for the entire community. And so you have to be very careful about where and how you let your hair down and, and, yeah. you know, with whom you do that. And so I've always been very fortunate to, to have, have some people, good some mentors. Good yes. Yeah. There's a great line in saving private Ryan, where he just said the, the Tom Hanks character. Says complaints go up, not down. 
Yes. Right. And so it's hard if there's no one to go up to. But I think all of us need a, a voice that we can sit and, and say, uh, hey, this is what's happening. Mm-hmm. So you're running for mayor. When's the point at which you realize you might actually win this darn thing? <laughs> well, I guess that goes back to the confidence, too, is that I think that one of the one of the benefits or the leg up that I had on the other individuals is that, as I said, the community had 31 years to test drive me. Right. So you know exactly what you're getting in mm-hmm. Jane Castor. Yeah. And so that was, um, you know, a benefit in some areas. It might have been a detriment with a few people that... Uh, I well, you won, you won thoughtfully, and I'm, I imagine there's not much buyer's remorse out there as you get ready to run for uh, your second term. Mm-hmm. So when you come into office, you, you, I would imagine you, you had things that you said, hey, I would like to address this. Mm-hmm. I think communities can be more of this. I think, you know, I know there are certain passions that you had. But you come into office, and what would you say if you said there are three things I wanted to make sure that when I came into this job, if I did nothing else, it would be X? Uh, well, I would say it's the transforming Tampa's tomorrow. I, mm-hmm. I had a very clear vision of, of what I wanted to accomplish and what I thought our community needed, and I still think that. And those are in the areas of our affordable housing, mm-hmm. uh, transportation issues, which we have got to solve, and workforce development. Yeah, and right, because all of these things lead back to what you saw on the streets. Mm-hmm. And I want to come back to right. that for a moment. So you spent 31 years observing yes. a wide variety. And as you said, the difference between equality and equity, mm-hmm. right, and people who had very little choice to change the circumstances they're in. So you come into this office, we're probably at more time than any other in your career, you have a chance to start to reshape that. Mm-hmm. And so you want these three priorities to start to happen. How do you begin to navigate that in a system that's large mm-hmm. with a wide variety of constituents, all who have concerns, wants, needs, issues? It's, you know, you'd already helmed a really large organization, but mayor's different, right? You come into office. What is that like for you to start to begin to uh, develop your agenda and try and build what you want in a community? Well, I I benefited a great deal from having been the chief of police, one, knowing the city, knowing how the different departments worked, but also understanding the difficulty in organizational change and the significance of surrounding yourself with a good team. So the first thing I did was to come in and build an all-star team. The next thing was to lay out that strategic plan Mm -hmm. with those areas of transforming Tampa's tomorrow and then put together focus groups that develop that roadmap in each of those areas, housing, Right, I recall you did that in the first year of your administration. And we put those together and Mm -hmm. we have been following those ever since. We have quarterly meetings to see what the metrics are, what we've met, what work we have yet to do. I want to go back to sports for a moment and ask you another question. Are you a field player or a technician? Field player. But your style seems to have a lot of technician in it. It does. I think you have to have both. But if um, I, I, I believe that good leaders also uh, do a very honest assessment mm-hmm. of their weaknesses, mm-hmm. and then you bring in individuals whose strengths Right. Well, you also learn, I think, adaptive skills. I, uh, by nature, I am a significant introvert. Right. But you learn to have to be 
right, right. in certain situations to challenge yourself in different ways. The same with me. I can get up and talk to a group of 500, but put me in that one social or two setting, people with right. a social... Right. Yeah. Right. I'm with you. Totally with <laughs> you. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about leadership and I want to come back to the mayor's role. So define leadership in your sense, whether it's your own definition or what you aspire to be or what kind of what 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 attributes drive you most as a leader? Mm, what attributes? I think um, being decisive. Yeah. Um, being open to new ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, something that someone told me one time was uh they they sort of equated leadership to a stream and they said your values have to be as steady as the rocks in that stream but you have to change with the times as the water maneuvers through that stream. Well, that, you know, I, I don't know if you might just want to take credit for that because it's a lovely. <laughs> okay. All right. From this point forward. That's now yours. All right. But it That's is fine. a great idea because I think you have to have foundational elements, mm-hmm. right? That you say, these are my core beliefs and the things, but you're in a situation that uh, invariably requires an immense amount of flexibility. So let's right. go with the very first one where you and I really got to know each other. So you're in office for about 10 minutes and we have COVID. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I recall going back to leadership, and I've, I've shared this many times, you said to me one day on a Saturday morning when we were out serving, you said, I'm asked to make 100% of the decision with 10% of the information. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think often about that, right? how you, you handle that. But you step into a situation that is unknown to all of us. And I've heard you talk about the leaders that step forward with you and the calls that you made. But you, you know, I even remember just running a food bank being scared to death because I thought, how do we help a community? Right. How did that, you know, what was your reaction personally to the moment you realized, oh, man, you know, it's interesting because fear never really entered the equation. It was just really in law enforcement every day is crisis management. It's just to what scale. Okay. And this pandemic was clearly large scale uh, crises. And you just take in all of the information available from every source imaginable and then make the best decision in the best interest of the community at the time. And, and frankly, don't look back. And, you know, at the end of the day, you hope the decisions you made, there's more positive than, than the negative, but um, that was such an unusual time. And it's, you know, it's making decisions that are in the best interest. How did you, did that influence the way you led, right? You know, did, did you think, uh, so what I observed, of course, it was just a small sample. You would come out on Saturday mornings and you would uh, serve the, the lines of folks that needed support from our organization and others. But what I, what I recollect most was the sense that people had when they saw the mayor there. Mm-hmm. Right. You, of course, may not have have been, that certainly wasn't your motivation, but you must have understood that a different type of leadership was needed in that moment from you. Right. That people want to see you as that calm voice mm-hmm. in the storm. And, you know, no matter what's going on behind the curtains, you have to present that that um, that voice and that image of strength and calmness uh, to the community. And I think that's that the community needed that at the time, without a doubt. Yeah, I, you know, from from our perch, it seemed incredibly important to all of us that we had, you know, particularly because there was a tremendous amount of instability across the country. Mm-hmm. You know, we people reacted very differently to yes. this crisis. Uh, you know, again, we'll stay away from all that. But uh, but it was important to have someone that said, 
let's just make sure that we're kind of sticking to the facts and making the decisions that we want to make. But I must, I, I assume you had significant amount of internal and external pressure to, to behave one way or another or to respond to the pandemic one way or another, or could you chart the path that you thought best? Uh, yes to all of those. Okay. You did. There was a great deal of external and internal pressure. But um, again, you know, you're in that position for a reason mm -hmm. and people want leadership. Yes. That's what they're looking for. They don't want you to to make a decision that's popular or that isn't um, grounded in fact. And uh, so uh, I think the answer to those questions are Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, I would imagine, as I said, the, the quote from you, you're making hundred percent of the yeah. decision of 10% of the information, but it's also taking hundred percent of the responsibility right? with sometimes 10% of the influence. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think, you know, for us uh, as a community that admires the work that you've done, I, I would certainly want to make sure that I said to you, for all of us that were out there serving uh, in any capacity, the fact that you are serving alongside with and importantly, you know, your community uh, was critically, uh, it, it, it bolstered all of our spirits. Well, good. So I want to move into the last part of our conversation. So during the time that we served alongside you, uh, making sure our neighbors were okay, we got to know each other a little bit and we started to share with you the vision where we wanted to go. And I want to come back and talk about your vision for the future and then talk a little bit about what Feeding Tampa Bay does and why you've graciously agreed to partner with us on, on this project. So one of the things you mentioned earlier, which we have the same idea, and that is that a humane response in a crisis is an important moment. But what's much more critical is the responsibility to make sure that you change the underlying conditions mm -hmm. that put people in those positions to start with. How do you think about that work and what's on your mind with how you really start to transform the community as you head into what we all think will be your second term? Mm -hmm. Well, at continuing along with that, that strategic plan that we have put in place and the vision for and with that plan is to ensure that as Tampa grows and succeeds, that everyone has an equal opportunity and an equal share in that success and that growth. And so you gracious, thank you. And you, so you graciously agreed to be the honorary chair of our, our capital campaign. And as you know, we'll be having a groundbreaking here pretty soon Very in January, exciting. which is exciting, but community projects like this, where there is the, the, response or the support of a nonprofit organization like ours, the corporate community gets involved and then elected officials, government gets involved in some ways creates the best of all possible yes. circumstances. So talk about how you see that and why you think that's important for communities to come together. If they really want to enact change, mm -hmm. it can't be one body or the other yeah. it can't just be right. It's got to be everybody. Yeah. I don't think it's important. I think it's critical to the success of any community because if individuals look to government for all of the answers, they're not going to be successful And the same with the residents and with the corporate. Everyone has to come together. Everyone has to understand their level of responsibility and ensure that they're working collaboratively towards the stated goal. I think that is just critically important. And it's one of the the attributes that I love so much about our community mm -hmm. is the way that everyone comes together when there is, a, you know, an a, a issue to celebrate and when there are issues that have to be um, uh, solved. 
Yeah. Well, we're certainly glad to be working alongside it. I think, you know, as we've shared with you before and you've shared with us, our common objective is to make sure that we lift people to a place that they have not been previously that I think we know everybody wants to get to. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to wrap up with just a couple of questions because I see we're right here at the end. Do you you want to jump in with our last questions? So there's something that we asked all of our guests, a couple of questions, just that, you know, some really down to earth stuff. The important stuff. I wish I'd seen these before. (laughs) Yeah, these are the hard questions. (laughs) Um, So for one, you know, is there a, you know, a guilty pleasure favorite food must have for you that like is just, you know, speaks to your soul? Oh my gosh. (laughs) If I, a guilty pleasure, I would have to say is a, uh, Bo's, uh, um, butter, uh, what what is it? Butterfinger thick and chunky. Oh wow! Okay, okay. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a uh, that's my car that's swerves good. in know, there sometimes. I'm not sure itself. why. Right? It's got to be Mike. Right? Yeah, Understand? It's all Mike's fault. <laughs> He's got a sweet tooth. Yeah. Um, what about? Um, is there a favorite food memory for you? Like a favorite memory around a table with people like involving food? Yes. Yeah. Uh, all of them. Okay. You know, any kind of holidays. It's it's big. Family is is a. a a very large part of my life and having everyone around the Thanksgiving. I mean, the caster Thanksgiving, Christmas, uh, you're 20, 30 people deep and, and bringing everyone from the community. If they don't have a family, they're welcome. And so, uh, you know, that's all centered on a, on a very good meal. Yeah. Yeah. Those are some of the, the best. I, I know that's mm-hmm. a common one for people because it's such a time of bonding and closeness. Yes. Um, and then, so just the, the last one, you know, say you're having, you know, a, a special dinner, you can invite three people, anyone in the world, alive, dead, any, you know, any, anybody you'd like to join you for a meal? Oh my goodness. Um, well, I just had the, uh, the pleasure of seeing Adele in concert mm-hmm. and I think she's, uh, she's, she's one of those individuals that she I does think is seem very to have grounded. a bit of a personality. Yes. Doesn't she? Yeah. So I think that would be a good one. I always thought to, to be able to meet Abraham Lincoln would be, uh, right. something I don't Talk know. Talk about how, leadership. Yeah. I don't know how Adele and Abraham Lincoln <laughs> would, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, um, gosh, I don't know uh, beyond that. You know, I would say one of my grandfathers or both. I never met my grandfathers. Ah, And so uh, both of my parents were the youngest in their family. And so grandfathers weren't around by the time I was born. Well, Mayor, that was probably the most eclectic dinner we've heard someone come up with, for sure. (laughs) We can't thank you enough. Again, I want to say as a member of your community, we are proud to be a part of of Tampa, and we're just uh, awful proud to be a part of your world, and we're really grateful and thankful for the time that you've given us today. Well, thank you. The feeling is certainly mutual, and thank you for all that you do for our community. Thank you. You can learn more about Feeding Tampa Bay and how to join the movement at feedingtampabay.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, and TikTok at Feeding Tampa Bay. <laughs>